Tales from the Vault, Episode 11 The Cave of the Echoes by H.P. Blavatsky Narrated by David Sweeney Bear The Cave of the Echoes In one of the distant governments of the Russian Empire, in a small town on the borders of Siberia, a mysterious tragedy occurred more than 30 years ago. About six versts from the little town of P, famous for the wild beauty of its scenery and for the wealth of its inhabitants, generally proprietors of mines and iron foundries, stood an aristocratic mansion. Its household consisted of the master, a rich old bachelor, and his brother, who was a widower and the father of two sons and three daughters. It was known that the proprietor, Mr. Izvertsov, had adopted his brother's children, and having formed an especial attachment for his eldest nephew, Nicholas, he had made him the sole heir of his numerous estates. Time rolled on. The uncle was getting old, the nephew was coming of age. Days and years had passed in monotonous serenity when, on the hitherto clear horizon of the quiet family, appeared a cloud. On an unlucky day, one of the nieces took it into her head to study the zither. The instrument being of purely Teutonic origin, and no teacher of it residing in the neighbourhood, the indulgent uncle sent to St. Petersburg for both. After diligent search, only one professor could be found willing to trust himself in such close proximity to Siberia. It was an old German artist who, sharing his affections equally between his instrument and a pretty blonde daughter, would part with neither. And thus it came to pass that one fine morning the old professor arrived at the mansion with his music-box under one arm and his fair München leaning on the other. From that day the little cloud began growing rapidly, for every vibration of the melodious instrument found a responsive echo in the old bachelor's heart. Music awakens love, they say, and the work begun by the zither was completed by München's blue eyes. At the expiration of six months, the niece had become an expert zither player, and the uncle was desperately in love. One morning, gathering his adopted family around him, he embraced them all very tenderly, promised to remember them in his will, and wound up by declaring his unalterable resolution to marry the blue-eyed Munchen. After this he fell upon their necks and wept in silent rapture. The family, understanding that they were cheated out of their inheritance, also wept, but it was for another cause. Having thus wept, they consoled themselves and tried to rejoice, for the old gentleman was sincerely beloved by all. Not all of them rejoiced, though. Nicholas, who had himself been smitten to the heart by the pretty German, and who found himself defrauded at once of his bell and of his uncle's money, neither rejoiced nor consoled himself— but disappeared for a whole day. Meanwhile, Mr. Izvertsov had given orders to prepare his travelling carriage on the following day, and it was whispered that he was going to the chief town of the district at some distance from his home, with the intention of altering his will. Though, Tales from the Vault, Episode 11 The Cave of the Echoes by H. P. Blavatsky Narrated by David Sweeney Bear THE CAVE OF THE ECHOES In one of the distant governments of the Russian Empire, in a small town on the borders of Siberia, a mysterious tragedy occurred more than thirty years ago. 
About six versts from the little town of P, famous for the wild beauty of its scenery and for the wealth of its inhabitants, generally proprietors of mines and iron foundries, stood an aristocratic mansion. Its household consisted of the master, a rich old bachelor, and his brother, who was a widower and the father of two sons and three daughters. It was known that the proprietor, Mr. Izvertsov, had adopted his brother's children, and having formed an especial attachment for his eldest nephew, Nicholas, he had made him the sole heir of his numerous estates. Time rolled on. The uncle was getting old, the nephew was coming of age. Days and years had passed in monotonous serenity when, on the hitherto clear horizon of the quiet family, appeared a cloud. On an unlucky day, one of the nieces took it into her head to study the zither. The instrument being of purely Teutonic origin, and no teacher of it residing in the neighbourhood, the indulgent uncle sent to St. Petersburg for both. After diligent search, only one professor could be found willing to trust himself in such close proximity to Siberia. It was an old German artist who, sharing his affections equally between his instrument and a pretty blonde daughter, would part with neither. And thus it came to pass that one fine morning the old professor arrived at the mansion with his music-box under one arm and his fair München leaning on the other. From that day the little cloud began growing rapidly, for every vibration of the melodious instrument found a responsive echo in the old bachelor's heart. Music awakens love, they say, and the work begun by the zither was completed by München's blue eyes. At the expiration of six months the niece had become an expert zither-player, and the uncle was desperately in love. One morning, gathering his adopted family around him, he embraced them all very tenderly, promised to remember them in his will, and wound up by declaring his unalterable resolution to marry the blue-eyed Munchen. After this he fell upon their necks and wept in silent rapture. The family, understanding that they were cheated out of their inheritance, also wept, but it was for another cause. Having thus wept, they consoled themselves and tried to rejoice, for the old gentleman was sincerely beloved by all. Not all of them rejoiced, though. Nicholas, who had himself been smitten to the heart by the pretty German, and who found himself defrauded at once of his bell and of his uncle's money, neither rejoiced nor consoled himself— but disappeared for a whole day. Meanwhile, Mr. Izvertsov had given orders to prepare his travelling carriage on the following day, and it was whispered that he was going to the chief town of the district at some distance from his home, with the intention of altering his will. Though very wealthy, he had no superintendent on his estate, but kept his books himself. The same evening after supper he was heard in his room angrily scolding his servant, who had been in his service for over thirty years. This man, Ivan, was a native of northern Asia from Kamchatka. He had been brought up by the family in the Christian religion, and was thought to be very much attached to his master. A few days later, when the first tragic circumstance I am about to relate had brought all the police force to the spot, it was remembered that on that night Ivan was drunk, that his master, who had a horror of this vice, had paternally thrashed him, and turned him out of his room, and that Ivan had been seen reeling out of the door, and had been heard to mutter threats. On the vast domain of Mr. Izvertsov there was a curious cavern, which excited the curiosity of all who visited it. 
It exists to this day and is well known to every inhabitant of P. A pine forest commencing a few feet from the garden gate climbs in steep terraces up a long range of rocky hills which it covers with a broad belt of impenetrable vegetation. The grotto leading into the cavern, which is known as the Cave of the Echoes, is situated about half a mile from the site of the mansion, from which it appears as a small excavation in the hillside, almost hidden by luxuriant plants, but not so completely as to prevent any person entering it from being readily seen from the terrace in front of the house. Entering the grotto, the explorer finds at the rear a narrow cleft, having passed through which he emerges into a lofty cavern, feebly lighted through fissures in the vaulted roof, fifty feet from the ground. The cavern itself is immense, and would easily hold between two and three thousand people. A part of it, in the days of Mr. Esvertsov, was paved with flagstones, and was often used in the summer as a ballroom by picnic parties. Of an irregular oval, it gradually narrows into a broad corridor, which runs for several miles underground, opening here and there into other chambers as large and lofty as the ballroom, but, unlike this, impassable otherwise than in a boat, as they are always full of water. These natural basins have the reputation of being unfathomable. On the margin of the first of these is a small platform, with several mossy rustic seats arranged on it, and it is from this spot that the phenomenal echoes which give the cavern its name are heard in all their weirdness. A word pronounced in a whisper or even a sigh is caught up by endless mocking voices, and instead of diminishing in volume, as honest echoes do, the sound grows louder and louder at every successive repetition, until at last it bursts forth like the repercussion of a pistol shot and recedes in a plaintive wail down the corridor. On the day in question, Mr. Izvertsov had mentioned his intention of having a dancing party in this cave on his wedding day, which he had fixed for an early date. On the following morning, while preparing for his drive, he was seen by his family entering the grotto, accompanied only by his Siberian servant. Half an hour later, Ivan returned to the mansion for a snuff-box, which his master had forgotten in his room, and went back with it to the cave. An hour later the whole house was startled by his loud cries. Pale and dripping with water, Ivan rushed in like a madman, and declared that Mr. Izvertsov was nowhere to be found in the cave. Thinking he had fallen into the lake, he had dived into the first basin in search of him, and was nearly drowned himself. The day passed in vain attempts to find the body. The police filled the house, and louder than the rest in his despair was Nicholas, the nephew, who had returned home only to meet the sad tidings. A dark suspicion fell upon Ivan, the Siberian. He had been struck by his master the night before, and had been heard to swear revenge. He had accompanied him alone to the cave, and when his room was searched, a box full of rich family jewellery, known to have been carefully kept in Mr. Izvertsov's apartment, was found under Ivan's bedding. Vainly did the serf call God to witness that the box had been given to him in charge by his master himself, just before they proceeded to the cave, that it was the latter's purpose to have the jewellery reset, as he intended it for a wedding present to his bride, and that he, Ivan, would willingly give his own life to recall that of his master, if he knew him to be dead. No heed was paid to him, however, and he was arrested and thrown into prison upon a charge of murder. 
There he was left, for under the Russian law a criminal cannot, at any rate he could not in those days, be sentenced for a crime, however conclusive the circumstantial evidence, unless he confessed his guilt. After a week had passed in useless search, the family arrayed themselves in deep mourning, and, as the will as originally drawn remained without a codicil, the whole of the property passed into the hands of the nephew. The old teacher and his daughter bore this sudden reverse of fortune with true Germanic phlegm, and prepared to depart. Taking again his zither under one arm, the old man was about to lead away his munchen by the other, when the nephew stopped him by offering himself as the fair damsel's husband in the place of his departed uncle. The change was found to be an agreeable one, and, without much ado, the young people were married. Ten years rolled away, and we meet the happy family once more at the beginning of 1859. The fair Munchen had grown fat and vulgar. From the day of the old man's disappearance, Nicholas had become morose and retired in his habits, and many wondered at the change in him, for now he was never seen to smile. It seemed as if his only aim in life were to find out his uncle's murderer, or rather to bring Ivan to confess his guilt. But the man still persisted that he was innocent. An only son had been born to the young couple, and a strange child it was. Small, delicate, and ever ailing, his frail life seemed to hang by a thread. When his features were in repose, his resemblance to his uncle was so striking that the members of the family often shrank from him in terror. It was the pale, shriveled face of a man of sixty upon the shoulders of a child nine years old. He was never seen either to laugh or to play, but perched in his high chair would gravely sit there, folding his arms in a way peculiar to the late Mr. Izvertsov, and thus he would remain for hours drowsy and motionless. His nurses were often seen furtively crossing themselves at night upon approaching him, and not one of them would consent to sleep alone with him in the nursery. His father's behaviour towards him was still more strange. He seemed to love him passionately, and at the same time to hate him bitterly. He seldom embraced or caressed the child, but with livid cheek and staring eye he would pass long hours watching him, as the child sat quietly in his corner, in his goblin-like, old-fashioned way. The child had never left the estate, and few outside the family knew of his existence. About the middle of July, a tall Hungarian traveller, preceded by a great reputation for eccentricity, wealth, and mysterious powers, arrived at the town of P from the north, where, it was said, he had resided for many years. He settled in the little town in company with a shaman or South Siberian magician, on whom he was said to make mesmeric experiments. He gave dinners and parties, and invariably exhibited his shaman, of whom he felt very proud, for the amusement of his guests. One day the notables of P made an unexpected invasion of the domains of Nicholas Izvertsov, and requested the loan of his cave for an evening entertainment. Nicholas consented with great reluctance, and only after still greater hesitancy was he prevailed upon to join the party. The first cavern and the platform beside the bottomless lake glittered with lights. Hundreds of flickering candles and torches, stuck in the clefts of the rocks, illuminated the place and drove the shadows from the mossy nooks and corners where they had crouched undisturbed for many years. 
The stalactites on the walls sparkled brightly, and the sleeping echoes were suddenly awakened by a joyous confusion of laughter and conversation. The shaman, who was never lost sight of by his friend and patron, sat in a corner, entranced as usual. Crouched on a projecting rock about midway between the entrance and the water, with his lemon-yellow wrinkled face, flat nose, and thin beard, he looked more like an ugly stone idol than a human being. Many of the company pressed around him and received correct answers to their questions, the Hungarian cheerfully submitting his mesmerized subject to cross-examination. Suddenly one of the party, a lady, remarked that it was in that very cave that old Mr. Izvertsov had so unaccountably disappeared ten years before. The foreigner appeared interested and desired to learn more of the circumstances, so Nicholas was sought amid the crowd and led before the eager group. He was the host and found it impossible to refuse the demanded narrative. He repeated the sad tale in a trembling voice, with a pallid cheek, and tears were seen glittering in his feverish eyes. The company were greatly affected, and enconiums upon the behaviour of the loving nephew in honouring the memory of his uncle and benefactor were freely circulating in whispers when suddenly the voice of Nicholas became choked, his eyes started from their sockets, and with a suppressed groan he staggered back. Every eye in the crowd followed with curiosity his haggard look, as it fell and remained riveted upon a weazened little face that peeped from behind the back of the Hungarian. "'Where did you come from? Who brought you here, child?' gasped out Nicholas, as pale as death. "'I was in bed, Papa. This man came to me and brought me here in his arms,' answered the boy simply, pointing to the shaman, beside whom he stood upon the rock, and who, with his eyes closed, kept swaying himself to and fro like a living pendulum. "'That is very strange,' remarked one of the guests, "'for the man has never moved from his place.' "'Good God! What an extraordinary resemblance!' muttered an old resident of the town, a friend of the lost man. "'You lie, child!' exclaimed the father fiercely. "'Go to bed. This is no place for you.' "'Come, come!' interposed the Hungarian with a strange expression on his face, and encircling with his arm the slender, childish figure. The little fellow has seen the double of my shaman, which roams sometimes far away from his body, and has mistaken the phantom for the man himself. Let him remain with us for a while. At these strange words the guests stared at each other in mute surprise, while some piously made the sign of the cross, spitting aside, presumably at the devil and all his works. By the by, continued the Hungarian with a peculiar firmness of accent, and addressing the company rather than any one in particular. Why should we not try, with the help of my shaman, to unravel the mystery hanging over the tragedy? Is the suspected party still lying in prison? What? He has not confessed up to now? This is surely very strange. But now we will learn the truth in a few minutes. Let us all keep silent. He then approached the Teuktschen, and immediately began his performance without so much as asking the consent of the master of the place. The latter stood rooted to the spot, as if petrified with horror and unable to articulate a word. The suggestion met with general approbation, save from him, and the police inspector, Colonel S., especially approved of the idea. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' 
said the mesmerizer in soft tones. Allow me for this once to proceed otherwise than in my general fashion. I will employ the method of native magic. It is more appropriate to this wild place, and far more effective, as you will find, than our European method of mesmerization. Without waiting for an answer, he drew from a bag that never left his person, first a small drum, and then two little phials, one full of fluid, the other empty. With the contents of the former, he sprinkled the shaman, who fell to trembling and nodding more violently than ever. The air was filled with the perfume of spicy odors, and the atmosphere itself seemed to become clearer. Then, to the horror of those present, he approached the Tibetan, and, taking a miniature stiletto from his pocket, he plunged the sharp steel into the man's forearm, and drew blood from it, which he caught in the empty phial. When it was half filled, he pressed the orifice of the wound with his thumb, and stopped the flow of blood as easily as if he had corked a bottle, after which he sprinkled the blood over the little boy's head. He then suspended the drum from his neck, and, with two ivory drumsticks, which were covered with magic signs and letters, he began beating a sort of reveille to drum up the spirits, as he said. The bystanders, half shocked and half terrified by these extraordinary proceedings, eagerly crowded round him, and for a few moments a dead silence reigned throughout the lofty cavern. Nicholas, with his face livid and corpse-like, stood speechless as before. The mesmerizer had placed himself between the shaman and the platform when he began slowly drumming. The first notes were muffled and vibrated so softly in the air that they awakened no echo, but the shaman quickened his pendulum-like motion and the child became restless. The drummer then began a slow chant, low, impressive, and solemn. As the unknown words issued from his lips, the flames of the candles and torches wavered and flickered until they began dancing in rhythm with the chant. A cold wind came wheezing from the dark corridors beyond the water, leaving a plaintive echo in its trail. Then a sort of nebulous vapour, seeming to ooze from the rocky ground and walls, gathered about the shaman and the boy. Around the latter the aura was silvery and transparent, but the cloud which enveloped the former was red and sinister. Approaching nearer to the platform, the magician beat a louder roll upon the drum, and this time the echo caught it up with terrific effect. It reverberated near and far in incessant peals, one wail followed another, louder and louder, until the thundering roar seemed the chorus of a thousand demon voices rising from the fathomless depths of the lake. The water itself, whose surface, illuminated by many lights, had previously been smooth as a sheet of glass, became suddenly agitated, as if a powerful gust of wind had swept over its unruffled face. Another chant and a roll of the drum, and the mountain trembled to its foundation with the cannon-like peals which rolled through the dark and distant corridors. The shaman's body rose two yards in the air, and, nodding and swaying, sat, self-suspended like an apparition. But the transformation which now occurred in the boy chilled everyone, as they speechlessly watched the scene. The silvery cloud about the boy now seemed to lift him too into the air, but unlike the shaman, his feet never left the ground. The child began to grow as though the work of years was miraculously accomplished in a few seconds. 
He became tall and large, and his senile features grew older with the aging of his body. A few more seconds, and the youthful form had entirely disappeared. It was totally absorbed in another individuality, and to the horror of those present who had been familiar with his appearance, this individuality was that of old Mr. Izvertsov, and on his temple was a large gaping wound from which trickled great drops of blood. This phantom moved towards Nicholas, till it stood directly in front of him, while he, with his hair standing erect, with the look of a madman, gazed at his own son, transformed into his uncle. The sepulchral silence was broken by the Hungarian, who, addressing the child phantom, asked in a solemn voice, "'In the name of the great master, of him who has all power, answer the truth, and nothing but the truth. Restless spirit!' Hast thou been lost by accident, or foully murdered? The spectre's lips moved, but it was the echo which answered for them in lugubrious shouts. Murdered, murdered, murdered. Where, how, by whom? asked the conjurer. The apparition pointed a finger at Nicholas, and, without removing its gaze or lowering its arm, retreated backwards slowly towards the lake. At every step it took, the younger Izvertsov, as if compelled by some irresistible fascination, advanced a step towards it, until the phantom reached the lake, and the next moment was seen gliding on its surface. It was a fearful, ghostly scene. When he had come within two steps of the brink of the watery abyss, a violent convulsion ran through the frame of the guilty man. Flinging himself upon his knees, he clung to one of the rustic seats with a desperate clutch, and, staring wildly, uttered a long, piercing cry of agony. The phantom now remained motionless on the water, and, bending its extended finger, slowly beckoned him to come. Crouched in abject terror, the wretched man shrieked until the cavern rang again and again. "'I did not! No! I did not murder you!' Then came a splash, and now it was the boy who was in the dark water, struggling for his life, in the middle of the lake, with the same motionless, stern apparition brooding over him. "'Papa! Papa! Save me! I am drowning!' cried a piteous little voice amid the uproar of the mocking echoes. "'My boy!' shrieked Nicholas in the accents of a maniac, springing to his feet. "'My boy! Save him! Oh, save him!' Yes, I confess, I am the murderer. It is I who killed him. Another splash, and the phantom disappeared. With a cry of horror, the company rushed towards the platform, but their feet were suddenly rooted to the ground, as they saw, amid the swirling eddies, a whitish, shapeless mass holding the murderer and the boy in tight embrace, and slowly sinking into the bottomless lake. On the morning after these occurrences, when, after a sleepless night, some of the party visited the residence of the Hungarian gentleman, they found it closed and deserted. He and the shaman had disappeared. Many are among the old inhabitants of P who remember him, the police inspector, Colonel S., dying a few years ago in the full assurance that the noble traveller was the devil. To add to the general consternation, the Izvertsov mansion took fire on that same night and was completely destroyed. The archbishop performed the ceremony of exorcism, 
but the locality is considered a 